Hi, everyone. I think we're ready to start. I'd like to welcome you to tonight's lecture. It's lovely to see so many of you here. I'm Professor Jill Dolan. I'm the chair of the University Committee on Public Lectures. Before I turn the podium over to tonight's distinguished guest, I just want to remind you of several upcoming events in our series. On Wednesday, November 10th, we'll host a conversation on the politics of food and healthcare, featuring New York University professor Marian Nessel and David Kessler, who's a professor of pediatrics, epidemiology, and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. Their discussion will be moderated by the popular food writer and former editor of Gourmet Magazine, Ruth Reichel. So that should be a, quite a fun and interesting event. And I want to note that that panel starts at 4.30 instead of our usual 8 o'clock start time, and that'll be right here in Makash 50. Then on November 11th and 12th, this is a two-lecture series, we'll be hosting Frank Wilczek, the Nobel laureate and Hermann Feschbach Professor of Physics at MIT. On November 11th, he'll be speaking at 8 here in Makash 50, and then on the 12th, he'll be at 450, uh, at 4.30. All of this is on our website, which is lectures.princeton.edu. We have a lot of events planned this year. I think this might be our, uh, a record number of events for the year, so I encourage you to look at the list. Just to give you a teaser of things that are planned, we're also having the filmmaker Earl Morris will be speaking, the graphic designer Chip Kidd, and then in December, the singer-songwriter Patti Smith will be here. Tonight's lecture is a Spencer, uh, a Spencer Trask lecture, and the, these lectures are selected uh, according to who will emphasize the importance of the humanities, which tonight's guest more than exemplifies. Uh, now it's my pleasure to turn the mic over to my colleague, Anthony Grafton, who's the Henry Putnam University Professor of History, who will t introduce tonight's guest. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Joe. Good evening, everyone. It is a pleasure to welcome you to this Spencer Trask lecture. And by tradition, we say just a little bit about the nature of the lecture before introducing the lecturer. Spencer Trask was a successful Princeton graduate financier and an original backer of Thomas Edison. In 1891, he gave the university $10,000 to bring lecturers here, described as eminent men who would deliver public lectures before the university on subjects of special interest. <laughs> And uh, a further $10,000 came for more eminent men from his estate when he died in 1909. Many eminent men did come, Niels Bohr, Arnold Toynbee, T.S. Eliot, Bertrand Russell, and happily over time we have redefined men and, <laughs> though not redefined distinction, recent speakers have included Paula Vogel, Richard Ford, Carlos Fuentes, Paula Fredrickson, Mario Vargas Llosa, and Alfred Brendel. And it's wonderful to invite tonight's distinguished novelist to speak with great appropriateness in this series of extraordinary people. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie was born in Enugu, Nigeria in 1977. Yes, that's right. She studied medicine and pharmacy at the University of Nigeria before moving to the United States for the beginning of a career which I think has really moved back and forth regularly between America and Nigeria. She devotes herself to both, both as, as writer and as, as resident. She studied at Eastern Connecticut State University and then took master's degrees in creative writing in Johns Hopkins and in African studies at Yale. And as everyone here knows, while she was doing all that, she became the author of a most extraordinary series of writings, including a play for Love of Biafra, the extraordinary novels Purple Hibiscus and Half of a Yellow Sun, and many, many short stories and essays. She's a very committed public writer, very committed to the education of Nigerians as well and as well as a novelist. That'll actually, I think, be the theme she's talking about tonight. She is a very welcome return guest here. 
in 2005. We had the pleasure of hosting her for a year as a Hodder Fellow in the Council of the Humanities, and that's one of the Hodder Fellowships we feel proudest of having awarded and happiest about in retrospect. The novelist, essayist, public intellectual teacher you'll hear tonight is an extraordinary writer, a weaver of worlds with which she creates with immense vividness, an explorer of minds and sensibilities, and a magician with words, with descriptive abilities that just beggar any description I could offer. Instead of piling up adjectives, which, as we're always told, don't help. Let me just read you a little bit from a story I read very recently, a story which struck me, perhaps, because it's about a middle-aged Jewish man. But it's a middle-aged Jewish man to whom something terrible has just happened. He's lost his daughter. And just a couple of paragraphs from this will give you a sense, I think, of the special and extraordinary distinctions of her style and her insight. He's been watching a little girl at a playground and thinking about his loss. He had stood unmoving, staring at the little girl that day, so long that his leg ached when he finally moved. He hadn't planned to come every day after that. He just did. Every morning, he would ignore the crant on the kitchen counter with the rest of the mail, ignore the coffee maker and Jessica's bleeding arms, get in his car and drive. He even ignored his cell phone calls, mostly people from work leaving messages to say sorry and let us know if you need anything. Sometimes he laughed long and hard because they sounded so solemn, all of them. He stood by the trees in the playground at first. The trees had leaves then and could shield him. Now they stand unclothed, like naked people waving too many hands. He would dig his palm over the rough barks until red dots appeared in his palm, and he would remember his grandmother, remember her back curved into a sea, her shrill voice saying, Don't just sit there, do something. She said it when he read Charlotte's Web and cried because the spider died. Do what? he'd asked, and she said, It doesn't matter what. Do. The writer who takes us into so many different minds and so many extraordinary places will be speaking tonight on The Writer as Two Selves, which seems entirely appropriate, reflections on the private act of writing and the public act of citizenship. Please join me in welcoming Chinuanda Atichi. Thank you for that really generous introduction. Good evening. And thank you all for being here. So, I feel very honored to be here today, to, uh, to have the chance to be an eminent man. <laughs> and to follow in the footsteps of really marvelous writers like Joan Didion and Richard Ford. And it's lovely to be back here in Princeton for which I made the effort to wear orange, <laughs> which I hope you all appreciate. Uh, <laughs> I spent a wonderful year here um, as a Hodder Fellow, and uh, I taught a class in creative writing, and I remember being struck by what seemed like a surreal quality to the beauty of the Princeton campus. I told a friend that it was like stepping into Alice in Wonderland, an experience that was both exhilarating and disconcerting. So the title of my lecture is Reflections of the, on the Private Act of Writing and the Public Act of Citizenship, which I came up with in a hurry after I, was, uh, after I received an email telling me that the title was required for administrative purposes. And so after I sent off the title, I then began to wonder what I would actually say <laughs> to make the title comprehensible. So I'd like to share some reflections from my own experience about being a writer and being a citizen, and about the expectations of citizenship that come with writing for me. And I would be very happy to take questions or to hear um, responses afterwards. Some months ago, at a reading event I did in Lagos, 
A Nigerian member of the audience raised his hand during the question and answer session. And his question to me was this. Are you an African writer? Now, at first glance, this is a particularly peculiar question. I was born and raised in Osuka, a small university town in Nigeria. I wrote a novel about a central moment in Nigerian history. I speak Igbo, one of the Nigerian languages. I have only one passport, which is Nigerian, and by all accounts, Nigeria is in Africa. <laughs> and yet I was being asked if I was an African writer. And this, by the way, is a question I get very often and nearly always asked by an African. So it is a peculiar question, and considering how often I have been asked, it is also an increasingly tiresome question. But before I go further with this African writer question, I would like to talk about writing itself. I have been writing since I was old enough to spell. My writing, when it is going well, gives me what I like to describe as extravagant joy. And when it is not going well, is a source of great depression, anxiety, and self-doubt. I write because I have to. I write because I cannot imagine my life without the ability to write and to imagine and to dream. I write because I love the solitude of writing, because I love the near mystical sense of creating characters who sometimes speak to me, because I love the possibility of touching another human being with my work, because I spend a large amount of time in the spaces between the imaginary and the concrete. My writing comes from melancholy, from rage, from curiosity, from hope. For me, writing is both magic and craft. It is a wondrous, inexplicable gift that I have been blessed with. It is also a steely determination to sit down for hours and turn inwards and scrape and scrape. Writing, we are often told, is a solitary endeavor, and it is. It is intensely personal and idiosyncratic. I have read of some writers' elaborate rituals, and I've also sometimes been tempted to claim an equally elaborate ritual of my own, to claim that I light red candles and recite an Igbo chant and briefly fall into a trance before I actually begin writing itself. <laughs> but although my ritual is, in truth, significantly less colorful than what I imagine or even wish it were, it does exist, as I suspect it does for most writers. My family and I joke about how when I am home and all is quiet and all distraction turned off and I'm supposed to be writing, I am instead spending most of the time wandering around the house, from study to room to bathroom and then back all over again, which in fact is true. This brings to mind a wonderful quote from Don DeLillo. Writers go out of their way to secure their solitude. And then, having secured it, they go out of their way to squander it. But that wandering is itself part of the magic and craft process. If the magic is the talent with which I have been blessed, if the magic is a whispering from the literary spirit, then the craft is the wandering about the house to hopefully get into that creative space where one can hear those spirits before sinking into the hours and the weeks and the months of typing, scribbling, rewriting, typing, scribbling, rewriting. But there is much I cannot explain about my writing process. I find it difficult, for example, to answer what I think is the laziest question anyone can ask a writer. Where do you get your inspiration? The question itself assumes that inspiration can somehow be intellectualized and explained and packaged into logical, digestible bits. Anything can be a source of inspiration. I am a keen watcher of people, and I carry with me a notebook to record whatever strikes me, the color of a woman's lipstick, an overhead conversation between strangers in a cafe, the slump of a man's shoulders in the departure lounge of an airport, all of which may become part of a piece of fiction. To write realistic fiction as I do 
is, I think, to try and make sense of the world by storytelling, by the careful recording of detail, by streamlining the chaotic nature of life into some sort of narrative with emotive points, by reminding yourself and others of what it means to be human. The process itself is a mix of the conscious and the unconscious. I am not always in control of what and when I write. Stories often come to me when they will. I am not, <clears throat> I am not always in control of the story itself. I start off with a general idea, and then, when it is going well, of course, the writing itself becomes a journey, a discovery. My first novel, Purple Hibiscus, came organically, and the story more or less wrote itself. But it helped that I was miserable in the middle of a Connecticut winter as a poor college undergraduate, homesick for the warmth of Nsoka, the town where I grew up, and that I was thinking deeply about the things that have always interested me, death, identity, family dynamics, class, gender, the colonial history of Nigeria and how it has marked us, the difference between righteousness and right, how political decisions manifest themselves in ordinary lives what love means. And most of all, a character had come to me with a hushed voice and an almost broken spirit, a teenager who was nothing like me and who I wanted very much to explore. My second novel, Half of a Yellow Sun, which is concerned with much the same broad interests as the first, but is set during the Nigeria-Biafra War, was propelled as much by the stories of my parents and relatives as by the accounts of strangers. It was less organic, more conscious in its structure and scope. And what inspired it? My desire to write about love, friendship and family, and how war changes all of that. A faded, beautiful photograph of my grandfather. The desire to record a time of optimism and of despair. The writing of the novelists Flora Mwapa and Chukwe Makaike. The smell of the dust in my hometown in Anambra State. And most of all, a deep, haunting obsession that even now I cannot find the language to describe. But it is a little too simple to, to claim that writing is a private act, end of story. If it were so, I would just write in a diary and put it, put it away in a drawer. And so audience, or the possibility of an audience, moves writing from the private to the public. So who do I write for? The most honest answer is that I really do not know because I don't consciously think of audience while I write. But perhaps an answer that is more comprehensible is that I write the kind of fiction that I like to read. And so I write for whoever enjoys the kind of fiction that I enjoy. Writing, private as it is, often intersects with the public. How could it not? I am reminded of my social studies teacher in primary school in Osuka, who would often say in a booming voice, as a preface to answering any question at all, man is not an island. Neither is woman, I think. We are shaped by where we come from. Our art is shaped by where we come from. The South African writer, Mfaklele, writes that under apartheid, black South African writers wrote mostly short stories because of the urgency of their political situation. And so their political space shaped their fiction. Orhan Pamuk is able to create such heartbreakingly beautiful explorations of Istanbul because it is where he grew up. And it is unlikely that I would have been so haunted by the Nigeria-Biafra war if I had not been born into an Igbo family that was deeply affected by that war. It seems to me that one of the more interesting examples of this merging of art and citizenship is the reception of international literary prizes. In looking at past Nobel Prizes in literature, for example, I was struck by how almost all of the winners saw their win as not merely for them, but for their country. When our own Wole Shoinka won in 1986, it was an international celebration in Nigeria. It was a collective victory. And sometimes, emerging from this 
is a wonderful sense of what I like to call we-ness, from the word we. I was very moved when, after my first novel was shortlisted for the Orange Prize, a prize open to women writing in English, but did not win, a woman in Nigeria, a stranger, said to me, we will win next time. And when I did win a few years later with my second novel, I had many moments of being hugged by strangers in Nigeria, being told how I had represented us. And I too came to see it as a prize for Nigeria, indeed for Africa. Although, of course, I alone got to keep and spend the prize money. <laughs> but <laughs> and I could give you some if you ask nicely. <laughs> but the glow of this weeness dims too quickly. Or perhaps it remains bright, but sits alongside a shadow, and that is the shadow of expectations. And the realization that, while the hugs are lovely and the weeness moving, the person who is the citizen is very different from the person who is the artist. The British playwright Harold Pinter, who is sometimes referred to in the charming phrase, the master of the pause, because of his ingenious use of silence in his wonderful plays, once said that in his life as a writer and creator, he agrees that something can be both true and untrue. But in his life as a citizen, he does not agree. He must know what is true. And this brings to mind a famous saying from Proust, a book is a product of a different self from the self we manifest in our habits, in our social life, in our vices. To this, I would add that the two selves are not entirely disconnected. How could they be? But that there is a certain unhinging between the two, much as there is in the character of Ezolo in Chino Achebe's Arrow of God, who, when he's doing his duties as the priest of Olo, adopts a different persona, or perhaps becomes another version of himself. It is strange to talk about creating and citizenship because of the general ideas we have placed around art, that it is separate, that if anything, an artist simply by creating suddenly becomes a citizen of an imaginary land of artists. And this is in some ways true. But we also live in a world in which the nation state dominates, in which the value the rest of the world gives us as human beings can sometimes be determined by the passports we carry. Traveling with a Nigerian passport, as I do, means carrying the weight of interesting assumptions, that I am likely to be lying, or to be a drug dealer, or to be a fraudster, the many expressions of disbelief when I say I am a writer, the being asked to step aside for more questions, the extra processing steps required for visas to countries as diverse as Kenya and Denmark. I sometimes feel a kinship to people from Bangladesh because it seems that Nigeria and Bangladesh are often on the same list on, on embassy websites. <clears throat> Countries whose citizens need something very cryptically described on those websites as extra processing time. But of course, citizenship goes beyond a mere passport. It is a sensibility. So while I have a great affection for America and live part-time in America, I know I can never be an American because I will never understand the game of baseball. <laughs> so citizenship for a person like me from a country like Nigeria in a continent like Africa is not just a sensibility. It is also a condition, a condition that arises from being what I like to call inhabitants of the periphery. And what do I mean by inhabitants of the periphery? I'm not merely referring to political expressions like third world, but to the phenomenon of being outside of the center in ways more subtle than mere politics, in ways metaphysical and psychological. I do not merely mean having what Chino Achebe has called a history of the dispossessed, but also inheriting and experiencing as an essential part of one's personal history. That history that we all carry around with us as individuals 
an accumulation of uncertainties. Or, to borrow from the title of the Zimbabwean writer Sitsi Dangaremba's novel, a nervous condition. We are a people conditioned by our history and by our place in the world to look somewhere else for validation. We are conditioned to learn a lot of untruths and half-truths about who we are. And some of us make the choice to consciously unlearn these. But even the very act of unlearning takes on a colonial coloration and feeds into our nervous condition. We are conditioned by the knowledge that we come from a place that has long been derided, and not only by the usual suspects of what we call the West. I was very amused, for example, when a Jamaican friend, who is my age, recently told me that when he was growing up in Jamaica, the general view of Africa was that it was full of dark savages. Never mind that Jamaicans looked exactly like those dark savages. Or a black British acquaintance who told me that in her playground in North London, a playground full of black British children, the expression, you look like an African, was considered a terrible insult. What if I walked into an average American classroom and asked the students to tell me the first thing that immediately comes to mind when I say Africa? At best, it would be safari and beautiful zebras. At worst, it would be the usual stock images of poverty and war and helplessness. Western literature, Western film, Western photography all have a long history of seeing Africa as a place defined by what it does not have, as a place of people who are somewhat lower. And there's no need to overstate this here. We are conditioned by this knowledge. And what this conditioning results in, I think, is a curious mix of defensiveness and aspiration. Among Nigerians, complaining about our problems is an art form. Most conversations quickly become a litany of complaints, government corruption, no light, no water, etc. But I think the Nigerians here probably should. <laughs> but if a foreigner were to say the same things exactly, to recite the same litany of complaints, Nigerians become defensive, sometimes angrily so. I have always been curious about this brand of defensiveness, which I myself often exhibit, by the way. It seems to me that we have it because we assume that the complaining Nigerian is aware that Nigeria is not only about its problems, is aware of the human complexity, knows of the intelligence and ingenuity of people, knows how they cry and laugh, knows what motivates them, what they aspire to, what they care about, what they dream about. And we suspect that the foreigner does not know these other stories, and so is likely to define us solely based on what we do not have and what we are not. And so our defensiveness emerges. Still, linked to this interesting defensiveness is a certain aspiration the same Nigerian who is furious about a foreigner writing or talking about our problems in a one-dimensional way will be thrilled when that same foreigner says something good about us or admits one of ours into some esteemed foreign rank. And it would have to be a foreign rank in the so-called West, by the way, which is where our education has conditioned us to look toward for validation. My Nigerian publisher told me a story of a man who had told him that I was not authentic because I wrote for the West. When my publisher responded by saying that my novels were widely read in Anglophone Africa, the man then said, I was still not authentic because I published first in the West. Now, this anecdote would ordinarily be unremarkable, if not for a little postscript. This same man, a short while later, contacted me to say that he had started writing fiction and asked if I would help him get published in The New Yorker. <laughs> what I wondered was more representative of inauthenticity than that bastion of westernness, The New Yorker. <laughs> now, getting people published in The New Yorker is a power I very much wish I had. <laughs> and so... To be a Nigerian writer published in what we call the West is a reason for both pride and suspicion. 
a reason for being scrutinized for the right kind of African representation, a reason to embark on a doomed quest for authenticity, a reason to perform the rituals and bow to the expectations of citizenship. You no longer belong to yourself, a friend once told me. And what he meant was that by making the choice to write and publish realistic fiction about a place like Nigeria, I am assuming a role outside of a private space. I have become a part representing a whole. There are now expectations of citizenship that come with my writing. But on whose terms do I no longer belong to myself? And that is why that question I was asked, are you an African writer? was not about geography or about passports, but about loyalty. And my answer was no. Obviously, I have no objection at all to being African. In fact, it is all I know how to be, and so I cannot possibly be anything else. My answer to the question, are you an African writer, was no. Not because I am not proudly African. And the idea, by the way, of being proudly anything of linking pride and identity, is a preoccupation of people who are inhabitants of the periphery. If you are in the center, you have the automatic privilege of not needing to declare your pride, whose existence is seen as simply being as it should be. I said no because I have increasingly been troubled by the subtle and not-so-subtle constraints that citizenship places on writing because expectations of citizenship often grow narrower and narrower until the former news with which we try to hang our own. The writer Bessie Head, who was from South Africa and lived most of her life in Botswana, calls these expectations a closed-door nationalism. I'd like to quote from her essay, in which she writes that black African students make up her hostile audience. She says that they tell her, when we read Achebe, Ngugi, and Ama, we find things here we can identify with, but with you, we are disoriented and flung into Western civilization. And then she goes on to say, I admit that my reading background and influences are international, but I would worry if limitation could be placed on the African personality and that only certain kinds of writers could properly represent that African personality. All my characters are black, but I reserve for them the charm of being unpredictable and highly original. I would dread to be faced with a dark dungeon called the proper and recognizable African, and that this should be the standard character one would find in an African novel. There is the urge toward a closed-door nationalism. Bessie Head refused to be called an African writer, insisting that she was just a writer, because she feared that taking on the label of an African writer would mean that she would lose what she called her universal outlook. This, perhaps, is another consequence of being an inhabitant of the periphery, feeling the need to proclaim and guard one's universality instead of simply taking it for granted. It seems to me that all writers must necessarily have a universal outlook, a universality that springs from the very specific. And it just makes me think of loving the novel Fathers and Sons when I was growing up and recently wondering whether Togenev ever thought or ever imagined that he would have a keen fan in a small town in southeastern Nigeria. And so I said no. I am not an African writer, not because I was anxious about universality, I am not, but because I had lost my patience with the question, because it is based on the great self-indulgence of universalizing one's own experience, because it is, a, it is a simplistic question that seeks a kind of easy triumphalism. If you say yes, then you get applause, and all is well with the world. But it is an applause that is willfully blind to the layers of meaning and baggage and interpretation that come with it. Willfully blind, for example, to the many emails from people who tell me that I should not write about sex as an African writer, or who tell me that as an African writer, I should not write about a subject that is likely to divide Africans, 
or a subject that portrays Africans in a bad light, or that an African would never do something that my character had done, or that an African would not use a word that a character of mine had used, or that an African would not make the choice that a character of mine had made. Or, and this is one of my favorite anecdotes, that there is no such thing as an African feminist because to be African meant an automatic disregard of feminism. Now this, <clears throat> this brilliant insight came from a young man in Lagos who added that I had been poisoned by the West because I had read all of those feminist books. Now if anything, much of my early reading was comprised of decidedly unfeminist books. I read a lot of Mills and Boone romances. My feminism, such as it is, has its roots not in any kind of Western poisoning, but in a primary school experience when I was nine. My teacher announced that the best academic student would be made the class monitor. Then she added that it would have to be a boy. I had come first, and the boy she selected had come second. So why should he be class monitor? I immediately mounted a campaign of complaining, throwing mild tantrums, and sulking. And finally, a compromise was reached. The boy and I were made co-monitors. As a nine-year-old, I was struck by the blatant unfairness of this. And as a woman navigating the world, I am struck often by the subtle and not so subtle gender inequities everywhere. It interests me. My writing reflects this interest. How then can feminism and being African be mutually exclusive? Flora Mwapa is considered the mother of African writing in English, although I have never really understood why African literature needs parents. Chino Achebe often being referred to as the father of African literature. I would really like to know who the parents of American literature are. But Florent Wapa wrote wonderful, witty fiction about women in a world that she described in her own words as dominated by men. But in many interviews, she stated very clearly that she was not a feminist. What is feminism anyway? To use the wonderful words of Rebecca West, I myself have never been able to figure out precisely what feminism is. I only know that people call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat. <laughs> so feminism means different things in different contexts. So now academics have new terms like first wave feminism and second wave feminism, none of which I understand really. For me, feminism is anything that reminds me of that first primary school experience. It is an acknowledgement of and a desire to change the fact that men have, in most if not all of the world, had social, economic, and political privileges solely because they are men. Florent Wapa's work both acknowledged and showed a keen desire to complicate this phenomenon of male privilege, but she would not accept that she was a feminist. Obviously, feminism is a contested word. Perhaps Flora Wapa rejected it because it was a word that was seen as too representative of the concerns of white middle-class women, which were not always the same as the concerns of third-world women. Or perhaps Flora Wapa rejected it because, as I suspect, she wanted to comply to an expectation of citizenship, to perform citizenship, to declare her loyalty at the altar of authentic Africanness, one in which feminism did not exist. Some years ago, I began to call myself an African feminist in response to that idea of feminism and Africanness being mutually exclusive. And then another nice young man in Nigeria told me, after reading an interview in which I had said that I was an African feminist, that feminists were just angry women who could not find husbands and advised me to immediately stop calling myself a feminist. I then thought that I had better modify things even further and call myself a happy African feminist. <laughs> now, now I find it completely unnecessary to twist myself out of shape. <laughs> in my eagerness to perform citizenship, to perform identity. I am a feminist. 
and it is an identity that I will define for myself. But that demonstrated to me the power that comes with the very act of naming something. Until I had to confront that label feminist, I was simply a human being whose eyes, because of an experience in primary school, had opened to, to a reality of the world. But confronting that label suddenly meant that it had power, especially presented as it was as something in opposition to Africanness. And because I wanted to perform citizenship, and at some deep, unreasonable level, I still want to, that label gained much more power than it really deserved. Another central part of the expectations on an African writer to perform citizenship, to embark on that doomed quest for authenticity, is the language question. I once met an African academic who talked endlessly about how African literature had to be written in indigenous African languages. African writers, he said, should not choose to write in English or French. I have always found it a strange discourse that African literature must be written in indigenous African languages subject. Now, I feel very strongly that English is mine. I grew up speaking both Igbo and English, and both are mine. And while I certainly mourn the scarcity of written literature in Igbo, I felt that talking about African literature in African indigenous languages was strange without first talking about the education system in countries like Nigeria. If you have a country that educates its citizens entirely in English, as is the case in Nigeria, in my primary school, you could be punished for doing something called speaking the vernacular, which actually was just speaking your language, but it was punishable. Now, if you have that in a country that educates people entirely in English, it means you're making the citizens literate only in English. And it means that those who will write will write in the language in which they are literate. But this continues to be a discourse among academics. This continues to be something people talk about in ways that I find truly puzzling. But what struck me with this academic was that he then received a phone call on his cell phone while we were talking, and it was from one of his children. He spoke only English. After he hung up, I asked, do your children speak Yoruba? Yoruba was his language. He looked away for a moment, and then he said, no. Now, this is not to scapegoat one particular person, as I think this is a situation that is more common than not. It illustrates, I think, one of the problems of approaching literature with certain expectations of African citizenship, that we as a people on the periphery, are heavily emotionally and psychologically invested in the idea of our home, not as it is, but as we wish it were. Allow me to tell another little story. In my ancestral hometown, Aba, in Anambra State, I, this was in 2003, and I had at that point very strong romanticized ideas of my hometown. In effect, I still do. I love the rhythm of listening to old people talking, and I do so with a keen wish that I could speak their beautiful, proverb-rich version of Igbo, rather than my modern English-influenced and not uh, terribly musical Igbo. I would take walks around my hometown and think to myself, my grandfather walked on this land, my great-grandmother fetched water on the stream, that sort of thing all of which gave me a simple, lasting contentment. So it was 2003, and I was walking from my father's house to my family's ancestral homestead to visit my uncle. It was in the middle of Hamatan. The soil was baked, and the dirt roads were cracked, the cracks sometimes widening into large gullies. Two girls were walking ahead of me. They were local. I had earlier seen them chatting to one of the bread hawkers on the roadside. They were walking, talking, and laughing, and then one of them slipped and fell. She said something as she fell. I expected that it would be something in Igbo, perhaps a common exclamation like, a war. But the exclamation that came out of her mouth in English was, fuck, fuck. My first thought was that I needed to write that down in my notebook. <laughs> my second thought was that if I wrote that scene in a short story, 
the esteemed gatekeepers of African authenticity would dispute this and would prefer that she break into an Igbo elegy complete with proverbs. Now, even I wish she had said something else. <laughs> but, but what made that scene interesting and perhaps fiction-worthy is that she did not. And for me, what is essential in fiction is what H.G. Wells has called the jolly coarsenesses of life. But the expectations of citizenship, those imposed on the writer and those also self-imposed, can often get in the way of these jolly coarsenesses. Fiction is in many ways like faith. It is a leap of the imagination. Fiction has the ability to illuminate reality. Fiction has the ability to create meaning. As events unfold, we do not always know what they mean, but in telling the story of what happened, meaning emerges, and we are able to make connections with emotive significance. Most of all, fiction has the ability to create what I like to call a radical truth. It does not always do so, but it can. Now, when I write memoir pieces, which isn't very often, I find myself self-censoring. I'm acutely aware of protecting myself, of protecting the people I care about, of thinking about how they will appear to the reader, that sort of thing. But in writing fiction, I am free to be radically truthful, not just with facts, but with deeper emotional truths. Perhaps this ability of fiction comes from the freeing idea of being alive in a body not your own or of inhabiting another version of yourself. Citizenship can sometimes walk against this radical truth because citizenship is about, to use the expression of E.M. Foster's character in A Passage to India, the herd instinct. One of my favorite novels is The Dark Child by Kamaralaye. It's a book of startling beauty, of defiant optimism, of the most layered nostalgia. The Dark Child is about a quiet childhood in the plains of Guinea, a book which begins with the simple sentence, I was a little boy playing around my father's hut, and then leads us into a world of wonderfully realized characters. His father is a goldsmith who makes gold trinkets. His mother has supernatural powers. He observes festivals, hunting, the rice harvest, the transition to manhood, school, girls. Kamaralaye wrote this book in 1954, in the heat of the anti-colonial struggle. And some African critics felt that the book was not at all scorched. An African critic famously asked him, was it really like that for you, brother? What the critic meant was not only, was it really that easy? Was it really that happy? But also, how dare you betray us? How dare you not show your anti-colonial rage? But for me, Kamara Lai's beautiful novel is just as anti-colonial as the more overtly political novels. And indeed, more successfully so, because it quietly and insistently portrays the complex humanity of people whose humanity had been made negotiable to justify their exploitation. It's a novel that refuses to allow a reader look away from this. It is a novel that reminds us, as literature should, of what is essential and enduring. I first read it as a teenager, and on recently rereading an early edition, I was struck by a sentence in the introduction by the British writer William Plummer. Laie, he writes, introduces us to a society which appears entirely free of vulgarity. I am pleased that there's a new edition just out from Penguin South Africa which does not have this introduction. <laughs> and I am pleased that, that we live in a world in which African writers are not expected or assumed to be writing about a place full of vulgarity so that it becomes remarkable when it appears to be entirely free of vulgarity. The expectations of African citizenship certainly affect how a writer is read, but obviously not only by fellow Africans. To carry that label, African writer in the so-called West, is to be a voice to explain your country's politics. It became very clear to me shortly after I was first published in the US that my work was often looked at through a political lens. 
I would do public readings and often be asked or even be told that my novel was a, politically, was a political allegory that my abusive father character represented Nigeria's brutal dictator. Why, I wondered, must my character somehow represent something political? Why must I always have words like sociopolitical linked to my fiction? Why am I not asked about the interpersonal relationships between the characters, about love, about personal motivations of the characters? Obviously, I know the reasons. The modern African novels have their roots in the anti-colonial struggle and that so little African writing is known outside of Africa that the very response, that the easy response is always to read it as some sort of native explanation of the African condition. And that this is, it's almost impossible for, a novel, for, for an African novel to be read first as a story of human beings before being read as representing a political situation. But it does not change the truth, which is that when I sat down to write that father character in Purple Hibiscus, I was not thinking, I shall now write an important allegorical representation of Nigeria's military culture. <laughs> Instead, I was going through the magic and craft process, and I was keen simply to tell a human story. Now, there are many times, by the way, when I have answered yes, to the question, are you an African writer? And my general, my general strategy now is to answer no on one occasion and then yes on the next occasion. <laughs> it is a yes that reflects my ambivalence, but also my anxiety not to be misunderstood. I belong, is what my yes says. I belong. But that yes also comes with a whisper you must let me belong on my own terms, on multiple terms, for that is the essence of art. We must move from Bessie Head's closed-door nationalism to a nationalism in which even the windows are flung open. And I would like to end with some words from Bessie Head. When she was asked the question, why do you write? Her response was this, I am building a stairway to the stars. I have the authority to take the whole of mankind up there with me. That is why I write. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Uh, for statistical reason, uh, I feel like compelled to ask you if you feel like uh, African writer. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was hoping that somebody would. So thank yeah, you. That was pretty obvious. <laughs> so uh, I just read a Mexican book, and it's Mexican because it's about Mexico from a Mexican writer, Juan Rulfo. Uh, the name of the book is El Llano en Llamas, uh, The Burning Plains, I think, something like that. And uh, it's one of my favorite books. Well, it's a, a series of uh, short stories. And uh, everything about that is uh, the land, the people, the smell of the land, the, the, the sound of the birds, like something really Mexican. And since I am Mexican, I feel very attached to that book. So uh, my question is, if you feel attachment to some sort of literature from Nigeria in that way. Yes. Yes, I do. And I, and, and I sort of think that most people do. Um, uh, I, often, I, I, I often talk about Chino Achebe, who is the father of African literature. <laughs> As, as being the writer whose work gave me permission to write, because when I, I grew up in a university town, I read a lot of children's books, which were mostly um, British and somewhere few were American. And when I started to write, all my characters were white because I was just sort of repeating what I was reading. And then I read Things Fall Apart and Arrow of God and actually The Dark Child, which I talk about. Those were the books that gave me permission. 
And I felt so attached to them because I felt that they reflected something that was mine. And, um, and in the case of, and actually in, in all, of the, all of them, it, the books had something exotic about them as well because they were set 100 years before me. But just that there were people like me it was sort of like um, reading about my great-grandfather. And I felt very attached to it, and, and which is also why um, it took me a long time to understand that it was possible for somebody not to like the novel Things Fall Apart. Because for me, I thought it was the perfect thing. And so when I met some, um, when I came to the U.S. And, and somebody had said to me, oh, we read Things Fall Apart in high school. I didn't get that book. And I thought, how can you not? <laughs> but I realized that my attachment to it is also quite personal. I mean, I think it's a beautiful book and, and it succeeds on the level of art. But I think that my deep love for it is not just because it succeeds on the level of art. It's also because in some ways I have claimed it as mine. So there, there are lots of books that I feel that connection to. And, and also books that, um, and then in some ways when I read Flora Mwapa, who is the mother of African writing in English, I felt, um, and I felt this way also about the Ghanaian writer Ma Taidu's work. I hadn't seen strong African women in literature. And to, to read them for me was also this wonderful revelation. And, and I was willing to forgive anything that wasn't so great about the books because, you know, they were mine. Um... Mind, I just wanted to mention, um, I went to Pitt in 97, and I'm just going to say this before I ask my question, and I had a professor, it was a writing class or something, and he always had things to say about Africa, I think he lived in Ghana for quite a while, and so, you know, coming from Nigeria, and he would say things, and I'd be like, no, and he'd be like, right, right, I was like, no, <laughs> so... And so he did it the first time, he did it the second time, and then he was like, you don't even know, you've been here too long, you've become too westernized, you're not Nigerian anymore. And I just felt so hurt because I was like, first of all, no, like that's not <laughs> yeah. all it is, as in you're just coming from this. Anyway, I'm just saying that just to let you know that so many people go through that. And, they, and after a while, I actually stopped talking in the class at all, I actually felt so hurt. And then he noticed that I stopped talking, and then he had to apologize towards the end of the semester because it just really just hurt my feelings. Anyway, that's besides the point. But my question was, coming from Nigeria, you know, the age that you are, the success that you have achieved, how do you manage to stay so grounded, so calm, and separate yourself from, because I have to say, you can tell that, you know, we're right here underneath, you know, <laughs> you know. So it's like, everyone is so proud and I don't, how do you just, you know, keep, because every time I watch you on YouTube, I think I've seen everything on you on YouTube at this point. I was still talking to my brother about it, about it today, and he's like, I'm so impressed with her. Doesn't she speak so well? And, you know, we go on and on. How do you keep yourself so grounded and so it's separate? very useful to know. I think I need more people to tell me this sort of thing, and no, then maybe we, I will know. No, we do. No, we do, and... Um, and he was just so excited that I was coming here today and all that. I had to call my family in London. I had to call the family in Nigeria. Oh, my God, I'm going to see you about that. You know, but how do you keep yourself so grounded and just separate yourself from all that you know, expectation and the pressure and you know, at your age and all that? How do you do that? At the grand old age of 33, right? <laughs> I mean, two things I'd like to... Uh, I think... Uh, I just, I just sort of also want to comment about the first part, about your experience with this, um, this professor who had lived in Ghana, because I, I really, I too have had experiences of that sort. And, and I think that the answer is, I sort of feel very strongly about that, you know, the answer to bad speech is more speech rather than silence. So I wish you had said more, right? And I understand that sort of just getting exhausted and saying, I'm just going to shut up because this is, but I wish, because I think otherwise it, it will continue. Right. And, um, and I've had many experiences of that sort where people are so keen to advance their own flat ideas of where you've come from. And then when you don't agree, they find a way to label you. So they say, you're very Western. And it's also interesting to me that somehow these are the same people for whom an authentic African is an African who is not educated, who hopefully sort of wears tribal dress and, you know, does tribal dances. Because if you're African and if you've gone to Oxford, then somehow you've, you've lost your Africanness. But if you're, you know, American and you've gone to Oxford, you haven't lost that Americanness, right? So, 
so I just sort of, you know, so if it happens again, please don't just say something, right? Okay. The, the I don't, you know, the, I feel very grateful to be read. I feel very grateful to have you people here. I sort of feel very grateful to, you know, be walking, to walk into a store in Lagos and some woman is coming to hug me and say, oh, it's very lovely. But at the same time, when I'm sitting down to write, it's, I don't remember those things. I, I mean, I, it's lovely to get prizes, but I don't actively remember. Right? So I remember when I'm sort of in places of this sort, and it's quite nice, and it's lovely to, to, to have these things, but it's not my... Um, because sitting there in front of my laptop, I'm still the terrified, hopeful person that I've always been. I'm still... It's always sort of a beginning for me, and I think that's probably um, why. And, and also I should say that, that there are people who've sort of said to me, it's remarkable the way you are. I don't even know. I mean, I just sort of feel like... I don't even know that it's remarkable if that makes sense, right? And and I still have my sense of wonder that I can be here and that all of these people have come to sit down and hear me. I have an incredible sense of wonder that so many people buy my books in Sweden. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, I have an incredible sense of wonder that I get um, fan mail from Malaysia and from India and from Japan, and I just think... What? So, and I, and I hope that I never lose that. And that's sort of what I, I often say to my friends, that um, when I lose my sense of wonder about what I'm doing and what I've been blessed to be doing, then, you know, it's time to go. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. Um, your previous answer leads up very nicely to my question. Um, my question is this. Um, I'm curious if you have this experience where people from a completely unexpected part of the world tell you, I, um, I can empathize with your characters, I can viscerally understand your characters, and you think in your mind, no, you don't, <laughs> or do you think um, your understanding is superficial because you've never been through this culture or you don't know where I've come from? So that's my question. No, I don't think that. I, I think that one of the wonderful things about literature is the possibility of multiple understandings and multiple interpretations. Right? I have sometimes um, heard from people who have said to me, who have just given me a new insight into my own work, if that makes sense. And, you know, I think obviously the way that you read my fiction is going to be different from the way that she reads it, because she's Nigerian, and there are things that she will sort of come across and she might find very funny. And it's humor that might just go over your head because you... you, you because you don't know the context. But I also think that, um, and I say this as somebody who grew up reading and loving, like I mentioned earlier, the novel Fathers and Sons, um, uh, reading and loving. In some ways, I think the American and the British books were more, it, it was more understandable that I would love them because, you know, I consumed American media because growing up in that small town, I watched Sesame Street. So I don't know that it was necessarily a leap. But to enjoy um, and to have this phase, intense phase of just reading everything Russian and not really getting all of the nuances, but still getting a larger sense of what it meant. And that's what I think the magic of literature is. And so, no, I mean, I, I, for me, the idea that those people in, 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 um, in Malaysia and in Sweden are reading me, it makes me feel very, uh, it just gives me this... Uh, wonderful sense of hope for what it means to be human and sort of I have moments of just being very mushy and thinking you know, we're all connected in the world and then before I put back my cynical hat <laughs> thank you thank you um, it seems to me that part of the, the categorization process of, of writers is African or feminist or whatever it happens to be is um, also due to the publishing and sort of marketing books for audience consumption. And I was just wondering about your personal experiences with American versus Nigerian publishing houses or, or any others. Thank you. I think, um, hmm. I mean, I, in Nigeria, obviously, I, it's, uh, I don't feel that I, but also I should say that the, the, that literary publishing in Nigeria is, is it, it's it's quite small. So when I have a book published, I'm not necessarily competing with thousands of other books, right? And I don't think that my publisher feels the the need to find labels for me. And maybe also, obviously, it's also that I have the privilege of having sort of being, you know, being well known, so that a book of mine comes out and it, he doesn't really need to work very hard. 
In the U.S., I think that, and also in um, really what we call the West, I think that the labeling is it's somewhat different when you're, and actually not just African, when you're a person who is brown or black and from a part of the world that whose government doesn't have a lot of money. <laughs> this is sort of how I've, I've, this is my way of getting around using the expression third world. <laughs> I think that's where the, the labels get very complicated and really problematic. This is where um, being a Malaysian writer, I have a friend who is a Malaysian writer in, in England and who talks about being interviewed and somehow being asked whether he's an authentic Malaysian. And then he asked the interviewer, if I were white and English, would you ask me if I'm an authentic English person? I mean, what is this need for? And I mean, obviously, it's, it's also the idea of, of um, things being unfamiliar, right? It's that you you're come from a place that, that isn't really well known. So the, it, it becomes different. But in general, my experience in being published, I've been, I think I've been very fortunate. I've had, uh, I've had really good publishers in the U.S. and also in England who, who you know, who, within the limits of what it is to publish in Africa, have I think have you know done really well. I, uh, I I have problems such as book covers. It's very interesting that you you write a book and somebody wants to put a flower on it because it somehow has to be made tropical and, and exciting. <laughs> you know, never and 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 I've had those sort of and I think a lot of writers um, who whose circumstances are, are similar to mine have had those struggles. You know, not wanting something on your cover because you think it's big. and covers do matter that sort of thing. So I have those little things, but but in a larger sense, I think I've been mostly mostly lucky. But my hope is that we get to a place where we just won't need those. I mean, I would love, for example, um, if we didn't have anything on, on book covers, we sort of did it the French way, where you just have the, the writer's name and the, really, or that we just don't need, and you know, and, and I would also like to ban the word sociopolitical from book reviews. That would, um, yeah. I wish I had that power, but... <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll talk to you.